we have a uh, what you'd call a theology that is a collection of things that we believe to be true. And uh, we arrive at that through the Bible. That's our source. We don't have an, uh, an individual anywhere that has uh, revelation, that has insight, that's especially intelligent. Everything that we claim to believe to be true, we get out of the Bible. And so we believe the Bible to be the inspired and errant word of God. And it also declares itself that it's living and supernatural and active, something that only those who read it and read it uh, a lot will, will experience in the sense of God's working in a person while they read the Bible. And so it's not something I can say it's true unless you experience it to know it for sure. Up to that point, you just have to take my word for it that I uh, read and, and, and am touched, moved, motivated, inspired by God as I read. That's living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, it says, uh, the Bible, the Word of God. And so everything I believe as a person that I teach as a pastor, uh, I get from the Bible. And so I work hard to study it and to study it accurately and to study it in context of when it was written and the, the people that it was written to. There are a lot of factors that come into play when you uh, interpret or you decide what the Bible meant by the person writing it to the people that received it. And so that's the goal. And so the book of Hebrews, as I declare, uh, said to you last week, is officially the hardest book in the Bible to understand. And I say that just because of the consensus of all those who study it and write about it and preach it and teach it. There's no book in the Bible that is as difficult to understand as the book of Hebrews is. And so I've been reading it every day, 13 chapters, 300 verses since January 1 or before then, uh, since uh, uh, last fall. And I've memorized almost all of it at this point, and so I go over that almost every day, and I've been reading uh, commentaries, listening to sermons. And one uh, fellow I listened to this week, he said uh, there's 16 different views on chapter 6 alone in the book of Hebrews. And so I thought, wow, I wonder if I'm going to be the second one or the fifth one, or maybe I'll be 17. We'll see how it goes. And... Uh, so the book of Hebrews was written by, uh, and in fact, the book of Hebrews was not a letter. It was not an epistle like all the other uh, books in the New Testament. It was a sermon first. It was preached by a pastor to his small home church, house church, uh, probably in Rome. And then it became a, uh, either his written form or someone else who wrote it. It became so popular, it, it spread very rapidly to the point that it became a sort of a standard Many, many people referred to the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, the sermon of Hebrews uh, and during that time period. And even the early church fathers all um, talked about the content that was in it. Hebrews was probably written about 65 AD, right about the time that uh, Rome burned and when uh, Nero got blamed for it. And then he started a severe persecution of believers, of Christians, blaming them for the burning of Rome. And so if you want to read about that, it's gross, it's awful what they did uh, in torturing Christians. They, uh, you can read it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Don't read it before you go to bed at night. Uh, better to read it in the morning uh, in the sense of the description of what they did to torture and to torment believers. And so the goal was is to get Christians to recant, to deny their faith in Christ. And if they did, then they were spared the torture that they went through. 
And uh, so this pastor is writing or he preaches this sermon to his little congregation because they were starting to fall away because of the persecution. They were starting to leave their faith. And so this whole sermon, this whole book revolves around that theme. So one of the, the aspects of theology that we understand today is what is termed Calvinism as a title and also the opposite, which would be called Arminianism. And there's a number of facets to that theology, but the essence of it that makes the two different, Calvinism would say that once you become a member of the family of God, once you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and are born again, written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're secure. You can never lose your salvation. Arminians would say, no, uh, if you deny Christ, if you uh, are bad enough, you get kicked out of the family of God, you lose your salvation. And so that's been a debated thing since the church began over the years. And Calvinism is based on John Calvin, an individual who did a lot of writing, and Arminianism, the same, an individual by that name who championed that particular theological view. So uh, Baptists are historically Calvinist, and Arminianism, this is their favorite book. They use the book of Hebrews more than any other place to prove that you can indeed lose your salvation. And so we're going to talk about uh, that a lot in the weeks and months ahead as we go through the book. So, number one in your notes, we're saved by believing the gospel. We're saved by believing the gospel. By survey, 75% of the people in the United States say they're believers, they're Christians. And if you ask them uh, about that, have a conversation, what they mean by that, most of the time you'll find that it's they believe in a historical Jesus. That is, they believe that Jesus existed as a person. They give mental assent to a historical fact, very much like uh, I believe in George Washington. There's nothing special about believing in George Washington other than the fact that I believe that he indeed was, uh, was uh, first president of the United States, born when they say he was born, lived where they say he was lived. Yeah, I believe, I agree with all the history. And so the question is, does believing in Jesus uh, as a historical person who indeed lived and did what is that what uh, the Bible means by believing and being saved and the answer according to the writer of Hebrews the speaker of Hebrews is no not even close when I was uh, just oh, a little bitty kid my mom would send me to three four five vacation Bible schools as long as they didn't happen at the same time and they were close enough reasonably to drive she'd send me to all of them I went to Presbyterian, Episcopalian, uh, Assembly of God, Baptist. It didn't matter. Uh, it was a good place to send me for the summer. And so I remember even now uh, when you finished with the five days of vacation Bible school, the last day was the day that they would do the, uh, the gospel thing, the, the believe in Jesus thing. And so they would have this. Does anybody want to invite Jesus to come into their heart? Raise your hand. I would raise my hand. I got saved three, four, five times every summer because it just seemed like the reasonable thing to do to me. Raise your hand, yeah. They would come and pray, and I'd invite Jesus into my heart uh, every, every year, four, five, six times. And then when I was 13, I went to Glen, uh, 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 Fur Point Bible Camp in Glendale, Oregon. The speaker was Dwight Kinman. He was a chaplain in Portland, a former missionary, and he was the speaker in camp that year. I was 13 years old. I remember that year because I told my mom I wasn't going to camp. I had enough of it. I was 13, and I, Dad needed me on the farm. I didn't want to go to camp. My mom said, you want to live here? 
So I went to camp. And uh, this Dwight Kinman had a major impact on me as a 13-year-old teenager boy. And he said, you may have raised your hand at a vacation Bible school and prayed and asked Jesus in your heart, but that probably didn't get you into the family of God. Uh, That's not what it means to be a believer in Jesus. And so he caught my attention off because I knew what he was talking about. I'd experienced it repeatedly over and over and over again. Raise my hand, pray, ask Jesus to come into my heart. And he said, uh, to be a believer is to be a follower. It's saying to him, uh, you are Lord of my life. I will obey you. I will serve you. I will do whatever you like, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. He said, now, If you're feeling inclined to want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to think about something. He may ask you to be a pastor or a missionary. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be a pastor and I don't want to be a missionary. I want to be a farmer. So I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to hope that my vacation Bible school, pray and ask Jesus in my heart, that did it. That took. And so I went through the whole week with him preaching every night and every night feeling increasingly more convicted and more drawn And I remember, finally, uh, they gave an invitation. It was interesting. They had a big pile of big pine cones, and you would walk up and get a pine cone, and they had a big fire, and you'd throw it in the fire. That was your uh, symbol that you were dying to self. You were going in the fire. You were no longer running your life. Jesus was. And so I, I remember doing that, thinking, oh, please, 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 don't ask me to be a pastor. Or a missionary, please. I was 13, and I'm, I, I remember it was like it was yesterday. I, I struggled with that to, the, to such an extent. But today, if you say, are you a Christian? Are you a believer, a follower? Do you love Jesus with all your heart? And I'll say, I do. When I was 13 years of age, I went through the whole struggle of who was going to run my life. And uh, I presented myself to him. I declared him to be Uh, who he was. So the gospel, you all know the gospel. Let's review it real quick. Jesus is God. So there's many different groups who will say Jesus was a great person. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't equal with God the Father. He was created at a later point. Many of the cults believe that. Jesus is God. That's an essential part of the gospel. Jesus became flesh. He emptied himself of all that he was as God, stripped himself of everything that he was, the attributes of God. And so you, you know the main attributes, there's three of them, uh, that he's omnipresent, uh, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omniscient, he knows everything. Those are the three major attributes that Romans 1 declares that God has. Jesus set those aside and became just like me, just like you, Three, he lived a sinless life. He did something that none of us have ever done. He didn't sin, not in thought, not in attitude, not in deed. He lived a perfect life. Number four, he took my sins upon himself. While he was nailed to the cross, God did what only he could do. He reached into the future, took every sin I've ever committed, like taking apples off an apple tree, and he put them all on Jesus. It says, the Bible says that he became my sin. God looked at him as if he actually did it. And then he punished Jesus in my place for my sin. Because God is holy and pure, all sin has to be uh, paid for, as it were. And so he paid for my sin. He was my substitute. 
He died for my sins. Number five, he was buried, he, uh, and three days later he rose from the dead. He's alive today. So I have five fingers. God gave me five fingers so I can remember that. The gospel, Jesus is God. He became flesh, 100% man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. My sins were put on him. He became my sin, and he died, was buried, and he rose again, and he's alive today. And I'm going to live with him forever as I follow him, as I believe the gospel to be true. Number three, many people who have a salvation experience don't really get saved. So if you were to ask me, are you married? I'd say, I think so. Uh, let me ask, Patty, am I married? Okay, yeah, she says, yes, I'm married. So if I kind of went along, uh, you'd think something strange with him. I mean, people, if they're married, they know they're married. If they're not married, they know they're not married. That's a fairly definitive be, uh, event occurrence in a person's life. Ours was very memorable because of all the odd things that happened in the ceremony itself. So I remember it very clearly, uh, our wedding. Somebody got a hold of my shoes with white shoe polish. On w the bottom of one wrote SOS. On the bottom of the other one, they wrote help. And there was a part in our marriage where we got on our knees to take communion and when I, they, uh, we did everybody started laughing I was pretty sure my pants were ripped or something I couldn't figure out what the deal was but uh, it, it made a clear impression upon me my wedding so I'm married I remember the event that occurred the official ceremony whereby I said I will I do she did the preacher went through the things there were prayers and communions and candle lightings and the whole nine yards and it I'm married. So, a lot of people sort of think kind of maybe they're in the family of God headed for heaven, but they're not. And uh, that's a sad, sad place to be because once you find out that you're not, it's a little too late to do anything about it. Number four, it will be a really sad experience for many to find out that they are not headed for heaven when they die, after they die. I took a test as a senior in college, and it was not only a test as a normal test was, but this test was one that had to be passed by me as a theology major uh, at Western Baptist Bible College. And so when I finished with it, I was pretty sure that I aced it, that I got every question right. And I was thinking to myself, I'll probably get some special award at graduation being the only individual that has ever aced the theology final. Uh, and uh, so then I got a little note from um, Dr. Miller, and I, he said I needed to come see him. And when I walked into his office, he said, you flunked uh, the theology final. I says, I thought he was joking. I really did. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he, he didn't laugh. I says, no. He said, yes, how can that be? I'm your best theology student. He says, I don't know, but you did. So now we have a problem. You've gone to four years of college and you can't graduate. Have we got a plan B? He said, we got a plan B. So we went with it and I graduated. There's no plan B if you get to the end of your life and you stand before of the Lord, and you find out you're not in his book. 
there is no plan B, and it's going to be way sadder than me hearing that I'd flunked my theology test. Luke 13, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open, open up to us. Then, I, uh, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me. Depart from me. In that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And so it's obviously a surprise. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is wanting those that are in his church not to be surprised like that. Number five, we are saved by faith through grace apart from works, but obedience and works will follow faith if it is genuine. So we have a tendency as Baptists to depend on uh, our theology more than our behavior. So if you walk up to the average person in the average Baptist church and say, are you headed for heaven? Yes. How do you know? Their response will be John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8.9. It will be a Bible verse. It will be something that they know uh, that they have done. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, if you want to know whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life, look at how you live. Uh, how you live. Paul said, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. What's the test? Is it like a theology test? Something that you take from Dr. Miller? Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. We like that. I like that. That means it's easy, no problem, no price. Just accept it. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's verses, uh, verse 9. Then you go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So 2.8.9 is great, but we tend to leave off verse 10. Hebrews, as long as we're studying the book of Hebrews, we'll jump into that for a little minute, uh, for a minute. Hebrews 3, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me for who provoked him when they had heard indeed did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So unbelief and obedience are in the book of Hebrews just synonymous. They're back and forth. Hebrews 4.1, therefore let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed enter that rest just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. They failed to enter because of disobedience. Hebrews 4, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience, of disobedience. <coughs> Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him to those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. So uh, eternal salvation comes here on the basis of obedience. Hebrews 6, 7, Ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thistles and thorns, it's worthless, close to being cursed, it ends up being burned. Hebrews 6, 9, Beloved, we are convinced the better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany salvation. <clears throat> Hebrews 10.26 is a really strong statement. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Um, sinning willfully, terrifying expectation of judgment. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. To those who obey him. Jump to Romans 2.4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Titus is my, one of my favorite passages. Titus was a pastor, a young pastor, mentored, trained by Paul, and so Paul is giving him some instruction. He said, the grace of God, amazing grace, God's grace is free, no cost. Grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us, that is, he paid the penalty of our sins, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He said that because Titus was uh, just a young guy. First <clears throat> John 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins propitiation for our sins. That means he paid the price of our sin. He took care of it. He took our place on the cross. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. But this we know, but this we know that we have come to know, that we have come to know him if 
we keep his commandments. We have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it's a sequence of events. We're saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith, not of works. But once we're transformed, uh, adopted into the family of God, the Spirit of God comes and lives in us, uh, our life changes. And if it doesn't, it's a simple indicator that what we experienced uh, was sort of like what I did. Yeah, I'll pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart. Uh, it wasn't real, didn't transform us. So what would make the difference between that which we would call genuine, born-again, conversion, adopted into the family of God, and that which is not? You know, part of the problem that I have with people today as a pastor is, is a lot of people have been inoculated against becoming a believer. They become inoculated from becoming a believer simply on the basis of, I am, and they're not, really. Number six, the motive. The motive for a person drawing near to Christ to be saved is key to the legitimacy of their faith. So I've told you about this, but it's a great example, so I'll tell it to you again. In Sierra Leone, we were planting churches, and uh, it's easy to get a crowd there. You just uh, play loud music and, and uh, get a generator and have lights, and everybody in the village all gathers around, and so the first time we went, there was this little stage and one light, and I stood up there and preached a sermon, and one of the pastors there got up and gave the invitation. Well, everybody, there was at least a 1,000 people in the crowd. They all came forward. There wasn't anybody that didn't. I thought, wow, I'm better than Billy Graham. So I started walking through the crowd, talking to people, wanting to pray with them, and I asked this one fellow. I said, so why did you come forward? He said, because I want to be rich. I said, you want to be rich? Yeah. He said, if you're a Christian, you're rich. Uh, aren't you rich? I, well, not by my standards, I suppose by yours. He said, yeah. He said, you, all Americans are rich, and it's because they're Christians. So if I become a Christian, I'll get rich. So I could have said, oh, it doesn't matter what the motive is. Let's just pray and get him in heaven. He would have been one of those standing before Jesus at the end of his life that would have got the news that he wasn't in. So a lot of people today uh, have this expectation of God. Many presentations of the gospel make God's blessings the motive for coming to Christ. And the way they word that, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Bill Bright has a, uh, uh, four spiritual laws that I've used in the past a lot, and the very first line in that is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so an individual says, okay, I'll pray and, and believe in Jesus and trust him as my personal Savior, and then uh, their mom gets cancer. And they say, well, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, which in my mind means that I have no troubles, no problems. Life is good. If God really loves me, then I don't go through all those trials and tribulations. A bunch of people 
abandon their faith in Christ when they go through a crisis because it doesn't make sense to them that this God that they believe in that loves them would allow this bad thing to happen to them. And so when a person comes to faith in Christ with the motive of having a comfortable life, uh, it's going to be an illegitimate birth, as it were, and their name isn't going to be really written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The offer of salvation in the Bible is to be saved from sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. There is nothing in the Bible about coming to Jesus and having a good life. That's when we get to heaven. This life is hard. For some, it's harder. God grants strength and peace and joy in spite of it, but he doesn't bail us out of those things. That's just the way life is. That is, we are saved from hell, saved to heaven, saved from the control of sin over our life. <clears throat> so uh, I was chatting with a guy this week, and uh, I, I said, you know, you really got to get over this anger. As long as you keep getting angry all the time, you're not, your marriage is just going to be a mess. Your kids aren't going to like you. You're going to have trouble at work. Um, he said, I tried. I can't. I just born an angry person. That's just who I am. That's what I do. So I said, have you ever been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son? You understand those words? You ever officially moved from destiny of, in hell to going to heaven? He said, uh, well, I never thought of it. I just assumed I was good enough to make it. I said, your anger, all that's this. I mean, it doesn't take anything to keep you out of heaven. Just a little bitty bad thing, just anything. The only thing that gets you there is having your sins paid for by Jesus. You never done that? Uh, no, I, I never have. You, I said, well, the reason you can't get over your anger is because you don't have any power. You don't have any strength. You haven't been saved from the power of sin. We get saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell. We get saved from the power of sin. And then ultimately we get saved from the presence of sin in heaven. So our salvation is all about sin. It's not about the wonderful life. My uh, wife was a, the one who I think was pretty much responsible for all of our kids coming to Christ. I don't remember leading any of them to Jesus. And so she has this uncanny ability when they were little. I don't know how she did it. I would watch her, and I thought, how did she do that? That's like magic. Uh, they would do something bad, and she would just kind of look at them, and they would just turn into a puddle of tears. It was like they had just committed the worst sin on the planet Earth. And uh, I thought, well, she does that to me too, I guess. But at the timing at which she would then ask them about trusting Christ was after the guilt had got to the point where uh, they began to cry because of that guilt. There's a solution for that guilt. A solution is in Christ. There's a solution for that sin problem. It's in Christ. So the motive is always the key. That's why people come. 
the Jesus that, that works. We're saved from hell, saved to heaven, saved from the control of sin over our lives so that our motive is to be saved from the guilt of sin, the power of sin, and the desire to be holy. Desire to be holy is the key uh, motive for coming to Christ. I am bad, but I want to be good. I'm not awful, but I'm bad, and I want to be good, and I can't seem to pull it off. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Number seven, the biblical word that sums this desire or motive up is the word repent. Or repentance, which really means just change. It begins first in our thinking, in our mind. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so we use different words. Uh, we like the word believe. I think it probably is because Billy Graham used that word predominantly. John 3.16 became uh, very well known because of his ministry and his preaching. Uh, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes. And so that began to be the word that was used. But the word that's most often used in the New Testament is the word repent. Uh, the word repent, Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Luke 3, 8. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Luke 6, uh, 13, 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 24, 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 2.38, that was the first sermon preached at the beginning of the church after the day of Pentecost. Peter said, repent, repent. That was the essence of the preaching that they did. Number eight in your notes. As Christians were commanded and commissioned to be witnesses for Jesus, we're responsible to share the gospel and to influence people so that they are born again into the family of God. So, Ted Pratt is a dirty, rotten sinner, a pagan pervert headed straight for hell. And we go fishing, and I want to share the gospel with him and have him become a believer and adopted in the family of God, his sins forgiven, and live forever and ever and ever in heaven. So, what am I going to say? How am I going to convince him what's going to be the things that I'm going to invite him to do. Number nine, there are numerous ways and words to use in inviting people into the family of God through faith in Jesus, but the phrase I now use is follow, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. It has a lot implied in that word. Matthew 4.19, he said to them, follow me. So when Jesus invited people, that was the invitation, follow me. Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. Matthew 10, 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. 
Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Number 10, follow Jesus assumes that a person believes. You're not going to follow someone that you don't believe in. You're not going to follow someone that you don't believe is alive today. You're not going to follow someone that you don't believe has the authority to be followed. So the word follow Jesus has sort of uh, every aspect of what we would term uh, faith language in it. Follow Jesus. So every morning I pray a fresh prayer of commitment. I say, today, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. You died for me. You purchased me. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. And today I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to serve you. Today I will do whatever you ask, no matter how difficult or how hard it might be. Um, I belong to you. I know you'll grant me your strength through your spirit that indwells me to do that. And so that prayer that I pray every morning was the prayer I prayed when I was 13 at Fur Point Bible Camp, Glendale, Oregon. Um, I will follow you even if I have to be a pastor. And uh, which I think maybe the reason I was so afraid of it back then when I was 13 is I had some sort of awareness, I think, from God that that's indeed what would happen someday. But it's that willingness to do whatever he says uh, that's a follower of Jesus. So it's more than simply giving mental assent to historical fact. To be a Christian, it's to declare Jesus, you are God, you created me, you died for me, I don't belong to me, I belong to you, you purchased me with your blood, and I will follow you, I will serve you, I will obey you. You are Lord, Master, King of my life. So, if I have a cup of coffee with you and say, do you know for sure you're headed for heaven? Really? Not just smoke, not just hope so, not just sort of naive thinking because of a vacation Bible school prayer. Do you absolutely know for sure? What would be the basis for that answer? And so the answer ought to be, I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I know that as a fact. And you won't get surprised when you stand before Jesus at the end of your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you very much for sending your son Jesus to die in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. And when we recognize that we can't earn our way, work our way to heaven by being good enough and trust you, you forgive us of every sin we've ever committed. You adopt us into your family and your spirit comes and lives within us. And Lord, when that happens, our life changes from the inside out. Our desires change, everything changes. And I pray that each one of us would be fully devoted followers of you, serving you, living for you, obeying you, uh, because we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.